Yeah. Um, so last Sunday, we started our journey through the, bibl- the biblical book of Genesis, uh, as Grant took us through Genesis chapter 1. And today, we're going to be continuing in our journey through Genesis as we look at Genesis chapter 2. There's a ton of really awesome stuff here in Genesis chapter 2 that I'm excited to go, with you, uh, go through with you and to share with you this morning. Uh, and this is actually one of like, many chapters in the Bible where we actually see God really like, wearing his heart on his sleeve, okay? for us to see his heart, right? for us to come to know his heart, and for us to fall in love with his heart even more. Right? So that's going to be what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 2. Um, and, and a big thing we're going to be seeing this morning in Genesis 2 is actually God's heart for mankind, right? God, God's heart for us. Um, but before we get into any of that, uh, I want us to go to the Lord in prayer together, right? really acknowledging his presence here with us, thanking him for his word, right? and asking him to just move in all of our hearts here this morning. Okay? So please uh, bow your heads in prayer with me for a moment. Father God, we just... God, God, we do. God, we welcome your presence here in this place with us, God. God, this morning is all about you. God, it's not about me. It's not about H2O Church. God, it's all about you. And God, rightfully so. God, you're so good. You're so awesome. You're so worthy, God. And God, thank you, God, that, that your word says that, God, when we are weak, God, God we're strong. God, because, God, it, it's your strength, your spirit, your power moving in us and through us. And God, I confess that this morning I'm weak. And God, I need you. I need your spirit. So Lord, I pray you would just pour out your, your spirit in a fresh way onto me, onto all these people here. Lord, and we pray that you would just move in power here this morning. And we would leave this place more in love with you. And God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, as I said just a little bit ago, we're going to be looking, looking at and going through Genesis chapter 2 here this morning. All right? We're going to start by going through uh, the passage in its entirety, and then we're going to go back through and kind of break it down piece by piece. All right? And Grant covered chapter 1 in the first three verses of chapter 2 in his sermon last week, so we're going to start at verse 4 and go through the end of the chapter. Okay? So starting in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 2, God's Word says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Okay, so as I said before, there is a lot 
in here for us to unpack together. Right? And we're just going to dive, dive right into it. Right? So I know that one of the first things that some of you may be thinking to yourselves right now after reading through this chapter is actually a question. The question of why do we have another creation account here in Genesis chapter 2 when we already had a full account of creation, including the creation of man and woman in Genesis chapter 1? I want you to know that that's a great question, and I want to quickly explain it to you. The reason that we're seeing what appears to be another account of creation here in Genesis 2 is that God, like right here in his word, is taking us back into the creation account of Genesis 1, and he is highlighting or emphasizing this specific part of his creative work to us. Okay, that's what's going on here. Rather than it being a whole different account of creation, what we're seeing here is this kind of zoomed in and more detailed look at this specific part of God's creative work. Okay? And God has taken us back into the creation account to highlight and emphasize this specific part of his creative work for two reasons. Number one, God has given us insight into how we were made. God is highlighting and emphasizing this specific part of his creative work to us because it is the creation of us. God is showing us how we were made and how we came to be. And God chose to do this here in his word because we humans are the only beings in creation who are reading his word. Right? The, an- the animals are not reading his word. Right? Like you don't see a dog like going down the street and just, like, just looking at his Bible. Right? Like, like Animals aren't reading this. Right? The, the plants and the trees, they're not reading this. The stars, they're not reading this. The, the waters of the earth, they're not reading this. But human beings are. And we're the only part of creation that, that is reading God's word. Um, so it just makes sense that God would take the time to highlight and emphasize the creation of us to us here in his word. Okay? So that's the first reason. The second reason why God chose to do this is that humans are the part of creation that God values the most and cherishes the most. Because God values and cherishes humans so much, he is talking, us, talking about us more and highlighting our creation here in Genesis 2. I want you to just think about this with me. When someone values a certain thing a lot, or when something cares about, uh, someone cares about a certain thing a lot, or when someone is really passionate about a certain thing, they will talk about that thing a lot, right? Daniel Perkle, he loves the Auburn Tigers, right? So he'll talk about them a lot. John Stickway loves the Cleveland Browns, so he'll talk about them a lot, right? Caleb Marchand, really into rock climbing, so he'll talk about that a lot, right? Joel Smith, really into Pokemon Go, so he'll talk about that a lot, right? And like, I, I see others out here, I, I could, I could uh, call you out too here in this, uh, but I won't. Um, but in this we see that like, when, some, when somebody like, cares a lot about a certain thing, when someone is really passionate about a certain thing, they will talk about that thing a lot, right? And that's actually what we're seeing here in Genesis 2. God cares about us so much. He values us so much. He cherishes us so much that he's talking about us, right? And just think about it. Starting in Genesis 2 and going to the end of Revelation, God's talking about man, right? It's, it's amazing. <clears throat> um, so this is, this is the second reason why God is emphasizing and getting into the details of our creation here in Genesis 2. This is the first way that we see God's heart specifically for mankind this morning. So now I want to get into actually breaking down the content of this chapter with you. So looking at the first three verses of our Genesis 2 passage, uh, which are verses 4 through 6, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So in these first three verses, we're reminded that God is the designer and the creator of all things. Grant talked about this last Sunday as he was taking us through Genesis 1, and we see it again here at the beginning of Genesis 2. God is the designer and the creator of the earth and the heavens and everything in them. So everything that we see and that we know and that we interact with in this world hasn't always been here, but God always has been, and God created all of it. And modern science has actually confirmed the fact that our earth and our universe had a beginning, that, that it, it had a starting point. Like from modern science, we know that with 100% certainty now, that there was a beginning. And God is the one who created all of it. God is the one who designed all of it. 
And these verses at the beginning of Genesis 2 also show us and remind us of God's sovereign authority over all of creation, right? God's sovereign control over all of creation. In verse 5, the text says, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet, yet sprung up. Why? For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. You see, at this time, no shrub had yet appeared and no plant had sprung up because God had not yet allowed a shrub or a plant to come up. And the only, only reason that streams came up and watered the ground in verse 6 was because God allowed the streams to come up and water the ground. So in these verses, we see God's sovereign authority and control over all of creation. When God told creation to do something, it did it. When God told creation to wait, it waited. When God told creation to stop doing something, it stopped. And here in Genesis 2, everything was fully obedient to God. And because of that, everything was so good, so right, so beautiful, so peaceful, and so amazing. And this is actually important for us to take note of for later. So moving on in our Genesis 2 passage now, I want us to look at verse 7 all by itself because there's some really awesome stuff just in that verse alone. So in Genesis 2-7, God's word says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So this right here in this verse is our beginning, our start, our origin as humans. So many people in the world are asking and wondering where we came from, how we got here, why we're here. And this right here in Genesis 2 is the answer. This, This is the answer that the people are looking for. We're given some amazing imagery and some amazing detail of how we were created here in this verse. And I actually want to expand on some of this imagery and detail with you this morning because these things do a great job of actually showing us the kind of intimacy and nearness and relationship that God desires to have with us. Okay, so we're going to jump into these. And the first part of this verse that I want us to look at is the part that says, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. And as I just said moments ago, like, these, this verse does a great job of showing us the kind of intimacy and nearness and relationship that we've been designed to have with God. The reason I say that is that when we study this verse, we find that the original ancient Hebrew word that was translated to formed in this verse would describe a skilled potter who is carefully and preciously molding and shaping and sculpting and forming a lump of clay into a treasured and valued and beautiful work of art with his own hands. This is the word that God uses to describe how he created us. I, I, I'm just, I, want, I want to read this again. We find that the original ancient Hebrew word that was translated to formed would describe a skilled potter who is carefully and preciously molding and shaping and sculpting and forming a lump of clay into a treasured, valued, and beautiful work of art. So here in this verse, God is telling us that when he created us, that this is how he did it. He carefully and preciously came down to the dust, right? Just imagine this, God coming down to the dust of the earth, the God of the universe coming down to the dust of the earth and taking his time, the details, the imagery of all of this, to mold and to sculpt so preciously, so carefully, and that he made us into a work of art. God, this, like, this is awesome. Like, we could just go home after that, right? Like, this is awesome. This is so powerful. And, and brothers and sisters, we have the fingerprints of God on us, right? Think about that. Like, we have the fingerprints of God on us because he formed us with his own hands, the strong and the powerful and the mighty hands of God that formed the mighty mountains, that have, that have held stars, that have stretched out the vast oceans, are the tender and the gentle hands that also formed us. That's amazing. And from this, can you guys just like feel, can you see the amount of intimacy and nearness that God is communicating to us in this? He's telling us, he didn't have to tell us this, right? For all we know, we could have been like, zap, human, right? Right? But God wanted to communicate this to us. 
He wanted to make this clear to us. And he's communicating so much intimacy and nearness with us. And it doesn't just stop there. Looking at the rest of verse 7, it says that when God had finished forming the man out of the dust of the ground, that God came up to the man and he breathed the breath of life into the man, and the man became a living being. And this, again, shows us so much intimacy and nearness in the relationship that we've been designed to have with our creator. A good creator and his treasured work of art. And again, just imagine seeing this. He forms the man. Here's the man. And God comes up to me. Goes, right? And just imagine seeing that man t- like take the, the first breath. To breathe in the breath of life. Right? Man, holy cow. And if you haven't noticed it yet, I want you to notice that it says that God breathed the breath of life into the man to bring him to life. It doesn't say that God just went over to his, his shed, right, and he grabbed the breath of life his, uh, with his hands and, like, popped it into the nose of the man, right? It doesn't say that. It says that God breathed the breath of life into the man. So this means that when this happened, God breathed his own breath, into the nose and the lungs of the man to bring him to life. His own breath. The breath that brought the man to life was God's own breath. Because this is who he is. He is life. And this is what God does. He brings things to life in him. He brings us to life in him. And he does it in such a personal yet powerful way. We also see from this that God himself is the giver of life. And all people, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they like it or not, are dependent on God for their life and their breath and their existence. Because it wasn't until God breathed the breath of life into the man that he became a living being. So God is very clearly revealing to us that all people are dependent on him for their life and their breath and their existence. And this is very humbling, honestly, as it should be. But it's also amazing that, that, the, that the one who is the giver of life is this God who cares for us and loves us so much. And I want to point out the fact that even atheists and not yet Christians are being sustained by the life and the breath that God is giving to them every single day. Showing, clearly showing, that even though they may not love him, that he loves them. That he cares for them. Right? That he's still providing for them in that way. And, and staying on this point still, another way that we see that God is such an awesome God and that God has such a huge heart for us is that thousands of years after God, the giver of life, breathed the breath of life into the man that he had formed to bring the man to life and to make him a living being, God himself became a humble and fragile and finite human man, the man Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, not, not half God and half man, but fully God and fully man, lived on this earth for 33 years, where he loved and he taught and he healed and he forgave and he liberated, and where he, the giver of life, the giver of life, God in the flesh, gave up his life and sacrificed on the cross to bring our souls back to life from the dead. You see, even though God loves us so much, and even though God cares for us so much, and even though God has done so much for us, and even though God is the giver of life, every single one of us is guilty of turning our backs on God by sinning against him, by disobeying him, dishonoring him, and going against his will. And because of our sin and our disobedience and our rebellion against God, our souls, which were designed by God to be alive and thriving and full and satisfied and secure, became empty, lost, hungry, and dead. And our souls entered into this empty, lost, hungry, and dead condition because our sin, our disobedience, and our rebellion against God fractured our relationship with him and separated us from him. But because of his great love for us and because of his faithfulness, God came to us and he opened up the way for us to be redeemed. And this is where the coming of Jesus comes in. Our our soul was never meant to be in this state of brokenness and emptiness. But because of our sin, that's where it ended up and there was nothing that we could do about it. There's nothing we could do about it. 
There was nothing we could do to mend our relationship with God, nothing that we could do to get back to God on our own, and nothing that we could do to bring our own souls back to life from the dead. But God could do something about it, and he did. God sent Jesus out of heaven and to earth to become this humble and fragile and finite human man. And Jesus lived a totally sinless life here on earth for 33 years. And he lived such a good and a loving and a godly life. But at the end of his life, Jesus actually became the embodiment of all of our sins and all of our disobedience and all of our rebellion even though he himself was totally innocent and totally sinless. And when Jesus did this, God the Father poured out his wrath against sin onto Jesus. This took the form of Jesus being rejected, beaten, humiliated, mocked, spit on, and ultimately crucified where Jesus would die on a cross, taking the wrath and punishment that he did not deserve but that we did deserve upon himself. And Jesus died on the cross on a Friday afternoon. But on the, fo- the following Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead, confirming that he was God in the flesh, confirming that he had fully paid the penalty of sin for us, and bringing his offer of redemption and life to us. The giver of life. And to receive this offer of redemption from Jesus, you've got to put your faith in him as your Savior as your Redeemer, saying, Jesus, yeah, you do it. I can't do it. You do it. You're the only one who can do it. And you must commit to following Jesus as the King of your life. And if you do this, you will immediately enter back into a personal relationship with God. God will fill you with his Holy Spirit, and your soul will breathe in the breath of life. Your soul will become alive in him. And this this has huge practical implications on what happens to you after your life here is over, but also here and now as well. Right? Because with, without Jesus, you're going to go to hell forever. With, with Jesus, you'll be in heaven with God forever. Right? This is a truth that you have to humbly accept. The truth that you can't do it on your own, but that Jesus opened the way for you and Jesus made it possible for you. And if you'll trust him and if you'll commit to him, You will be saved. And again, not only will you be saved after your life here on earth is over, your soul in this present life, right here, right now, your soul will breathe in the breath of life from Jesus. Your soul will come alive in this present life and you will experience so much life and joy and peace and gladness and security that it will literally overflow out of you. So with all that said, I want to ask you this morning, Have you personally gone to Jesus as the giver of life for your soul? Your body is alive and your body is breathing, but what about your soul? Is your soul alive? Has your soul been brought back to life by Jesus? Has your soul breathed in the breath of life that Jesus is offering? I remember when it happened to me. I was in an H2O service just like this. When I heard that Jesus came, he loved me so much that he actually got down off of his throne in heaven and he became a humble human man like me because he loved me. That he didn't want to punish me, that he wanted to forgive me and cleanse me. And what I had to do, I had to trust him and commit to him as my king. And at that point for me, I was like, absolutely. What else would I do? Absolutely. I said yes to that, and my soul breathed in the breath of life. That was eight years ago, and I've never been the same. And this isn't something that just happens to you automatically. You you have to activate it by placing your faith in Jesus and committing to following him as your king. Jesus is offering the breath of life to you today. If you want it, you can receive it from him. All you have to do is trust him as your savior and commit to him as king. I encourage you to do this today if you haven't before because Jesus will be the best thing that's ever happened to you. I guarantee it. Moving on from that now. um, There's one more thing I want to point out to you from Genesis 2, verse 7, before we move on. Um, And and what I want to point out to you is something we see in Genesis 2, 7 and also actually all throughout the entire chapter. And I'm choosing to point it out now because it's yet another way that we see God showing us the kind of intimacy, nearness, and relationship he desires to have with us. And what I want to point out to you is this. Anytime that God is mentioned by name in Genesis chapter 2, 
including here in Genesis 2-7, it's the title, The Lord God. Every single time that God is mentioned by name in this chapter, it's the title, The Lord God. And Genesis chapter 2 is actually the first time that we see this specific title of God in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, he's just referred to as God, and that's it. But in Genesis chapter 2, he is referred to as the Lord God every single time. This is something important for us to take note of because there's something very specific being communicated to us in this, and I want to show you what that is. Okay, so we have these two titles, God and the Lord God. God in Genesis 1, the Lord God in Genesis 2. Genesis 2. And to understand what it is that's being communicated to us, we need to go back and we need to look at what, what the original ancient Hebrew words are in these two titles. Okay, so for the title of God all by itself, it's what we see in Genesis 1, it's the ancient Hebrew word Elohim. Okay, Elohim. And the word Elohim is a general term or a common term that means deity or God in general. Okay? For example, in Genesis chapter 1, the word Elohim is referring to the one true God. But when God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses in the book of Exodus, the first command that God gives to Moses is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the original ancient Hebrew word for gods in this command is also Elohim. Okay? So you can see here that this word Elohim is just a general or a common term that means deity or God in general. Okay? And that's what we have in Genesis 1. But now let's look at, take a look at the other title we see in Genesis chapter 2, this title of the Lord God. And looking at this title of the Lord God, on the screens behind me or in your Bibles, you may have noticed that the word Lord is capitalized all the way across the word. Right? The word is actually written in all caps. Right? If you didn't notice that before, you probably see it now and you won't be able to not see it. And this isn't a typo. This is actually intentional. And the word Lord is written in this way because it represents a very specific and a very special word in the ancient Hebrew language that this passage was, was originally written in. And the specific ancient Hebrew word that this fully capitalized Lord represents is the word Yahweh. This fully capitalized Lord, anytime you see it, it's the word Yahweh. Some of you may be familiar with this word. Others of you may not be as familiar with this word. But this word is so significant and so special because Yahweh is the personal and the relational and the specific name of the one true God. Yahweh is the personal and the relational and the specific name of the one true God. You can think of it as being God's identifying proper name. Just as my identifying proper name is Trevor, God's identifying proper name is Yahweh. And there's only one, Yahweh. And to understand why this is so significant and to see what God is communicating to us in this, I want you to remember from something I said earlier that in Genesis chapter 2, we are seeing God intentionally highlighting and emphasizing the creation of mankind here in Genesis 2. So in Genesis 2, God is highlighting the creation of mankind, and in Genesis 2 is when God's personal, relational, and specific name of God appears in the Bible. They come out together here in Genesis 2. And in this, God is saying, he's saying, mankind, I want you to know me by my name. Mankind, I want you to know me by my personal name. Because there is a God over all of creation, but there is a Father for mankind. There's a king with a name, and his name is Yahweh for mankind. And this is a way we see God's heart specifically for mankind because it's, just, it's so special here to Genesis 2. The same chapter that our creation is highlighted and emphasized. This is just yet another invitation into personal relationship that God is giving to us here. All made possible by Jesus. So here in Genesis 2-7, we see that God is such an awesome God. Such an amazing God. Well, let's keep moving. Um, the next section is Genesis 2, 8 through 17. Um, and in this section, uh, we're introduced to the Garden of Eden for the first time. Okay? Uh, so whether you're a Christian or not, you've probably at least heard about the Garden of Eden before. Right? And a lot of people, when reading this section of Scripture, invest so much of their attention trying to pinpoint where the Garden of Eden must have been in the world, or trying to uncover the specifics of what kind of place the Garden of Eden must have been. 
but I'm not going to do any of that. Rather, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus our attention on some of the details that are often overlooked or underprioritized here in this passage. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to break down the name Garden of Eden because there's some really good stuff in here. And doing this will give us some insight into uh, what God brought the first man into and what he wants to bring our souls into as well. Okay? So we're going to uh, start by thinking about the idea of a garden. All right? And I'm not talking about like the few tomato plants you may have like, like out your back door or something like when we're talking about garden. Right? I'm talking about like, like, like the presidential rose garden. Like it's like huge. Right? That's, that's the kind of garden I'm, I'm, I'm talking about here. And when we think of a garden, a garden symbolizes things like life, beauty, color, and peace. And in addition to that, the name Eden actually comes from an ancient Hebrew word. Okay? And that word actually means delight or pleasure. Okay? Our Genesis 2 passage even tells us that when God made the trees grow out of the ground, that they were pleasing to the eye, and that they were good for food. So all of these things, life, beauty, color, peace, delight, pleasure, all of these things are things that God brought the first man into in the Garden of Eden. And these are the things that God wants to bring our souls into as well. And if we will just trust him and submit to him and follow him, God will bring each of our souls into an abundance of all of these great things in this present life and in the life to come. And going off of this, I want to point out the fact that God himself is the one who designed and created all of the great things that we enjoy and that we take delight in in this life. God is the one who designed and created all of the great things that we enjoy and take delight in in this life. In chapter 1 of the book of James, God's word tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And this is true. God is, is the designer and the creator. So God is the one who designed and created all of the colors that we have. God is the one who came up with and instituted the idea of marriage, which we actually see him do right here in Genesis chapter 2. God is the one who designed and created the, the taste buds on our tongues and all the good food we have in the world. God is the one who designed and created the sunsets and the vast oceans and the mighty mountains. God is the one who designed and created sex. God is the one who gave us music. God is the one who gave us all the different expressions of art. And God is the one who designed and created this beautiful creation that we live in and so much more. And we talk about the fact that God isn't trying to take away our fun or rob us of joy or make this life dull in any kind of way, which is true. But has anyone, anyone ever helped you to realize that God himself is actually the designer and the creator of all the great things that we do enjoy and that we do take delight in? He's not trying to take away from us because he's the one who gave it to us. Right? He's the designer and he's the creator of all of these things. And it's amazing when you think about it. And it's my hope and my prayer that this would lead us all to praise God and to thank God and to adore God even more. Realizing that we don't have to put God in this God box, but everything we, we interact with, like God put there intentionally. God designed it and he created it. And it's my prayer that this would actually compel you also to not abuse or misuse any of these gifts of his either. Yeah. I just wanted to highlight that to you. The next thing that I want to point out to you um, from this uh, Genesis 2 passage is that work is a good and godly thing. Okay. Work is a good and a godly thing. In verse 15, God's word tells us that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. God brought the man to the Garden of Eden, yes, to enjoy it, yes, to take great delight in it, but also to work to take care of it. Right? And at this point in time, everything, all of creation was still in its perfect, uncorrupted, and unfallen state. There was no sin, there was no brokenness, there was no curse. Everything was operating exactly the way God wanted them to be and exactly the way that God designed them to be. So here in verse 15, when we see that God brought the man to the Garden of Eden, not only to enjoy it and take great delight in it, but also to work to take care of it, we see that work is something that is good and godly. It just shouldn't be idolized, over-prioritized, or misused for any kind of like, corrupt or immoral or, or sinful purpose. Uh, and our work is something uh, that is good for creation, for God, and for us. It's good all, all the way across the board. So I think for a lot of people, their view or idea of a perfect land of delight and pleasure and paradise and life looks like a land where they can just play Xbox all day, where they can just watch movies all day, 
where they can just sit by the poolside all day, where they can just sleep all day. But this isn't what we see in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. We see that work was a fundamental part of the perfect existence in the Garden of Eden. And to be clear, this does not mean that we, need to, that we need to be or even should be working 24-7. It's so important for us to take time to rest, to relax, and to engage in personal interest outside of work. So we should not be working 24-7, but we should view work as something that is good and godly, because it is. Yet another way that we see God's heart for mankind in Genesis 2 is the gift of free will that God gives to the man and to us. In verses 16 and 17, when, when the man is in the garden, God says, to, God says to him, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And here in these verses, we very clearly see God giving the gift of free will to the man. God says, Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Take your pick. You can do whatever you want. You can, you can have whatever fruit you want. In his love and in his kindness, God has given us this good gift of free will. And it's such a good gift because with our free will, we have the freedom to make our own decisions. We have the freedom to do whatever we want in this life. We have the freedom to go through this life however we want. Because of free will, we aren't pre-programmed robots. This makes it a very good gift from God to us. And this shows us God's heart specifically for mankind again because this is unique and special to mankind. The other parts of creation were not given free will, right? but we were. And this highlights God's heart for us. And in addition to giving us the gift of free will, God has also to told us what the things are that are good for us, what the things are that are bad for us in this life, in his word and by his spirit. And since God is our designer and our creator, he knows what is good for us and he knows what's bad for us. He knows how we operate best and how it is that we thrive. And because God loves us so much, he has clearly told us what is good for us and what is bad for us. Right. And even though God ha has told us these things, what is good for us and what is bad for us, we still have the freedom to choose to listen to him and obey him and submit to him and honor him, or to choose to ignore him, disobey him, dishonor him, and go our own way instead. But if you choose to go your own way and you choose to disobey God, dishonor God, and ignore what God has told you about what is good for us and what is bad for us, the conclusion that you have to accept is that you think you know this life better than your creator does. That is the conclusion that you have to accept if you choose to go your own way. And with your free will, I want you to remember that here in Genesis 2, everything was fully obedient to God. And because of that, everything was so good, so right, so beautiful, so peaceful, and so amazing. And this is what you get when you walk in obedience to God and his commands and his will. Right. We just have one more section to look at um, in the sermon this morning, uh, and then we'll, then we'll be done. Uh, moving into the second worship set. Uh, and this last, this last uh, section that we're going to be looking at um, is Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And I actually want to read this one again, and then we're going to talk about it. It says, the Lord, God, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and cl closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So the first thing I want to highlight from this section is what God says in verse 18. He says, It is not good for the man to be alone. So right here, guys, we see that we need people in our lives. We need good people in our lives. Some people may think that they can just get through this life all on their own without being close to anybody else. But right here, God, who knows so much more than we would ever hope to know, says that it is not good for the man to be alone. Right here, God is telling us that we need good people in our lives. And we need good people in our lives because we are relational and communal beings. We have, been, we have been designed by God to thrive in the context of relationships and community. 
So whether you are an introvert or an extrovert, you have been designed by God to thrive in the context of relationships and community. And if you're an introvert, I don't want you to like squirm at that. Right? This doesn't mean that you just have to always throw yourself out there in the community. You can have that time to rest, to relax, that time to yourself. But you need those good people in your life. And something else that we see in this section is that God is a God who sees our needs, knows our needs, cares about our needs, and provides for our needs. Here in Genesis 2, God saw that the man had a need for community, and God actively did something about it. And this is who our God is. Our God is a God who sees our needs, knows our needs, cares about our needs, and provides for our needs. Because he has such a heart for us and because he loves us so much. And I want you to see that when God provides for us and for our needs, he doesn't just give us the bare minimum or some sort of mediocre provision. He doesn't just throw us some scraps and tell us to deal with it. Instead, God blesses us so much with good and quality provision for our needs. And this is the kind of giver, provider, and father that God is to us. For the need of community that the man had in Genesis 2, God didn't stop until the man had a good and quality provision for his need. The text tells us that God brought all the wild animals and all the birds to the man, but none of the animals and none of the birds could fulfill the man's need for community. So in verses 21 and 22, God created the woman to be a perfect and quality answer to the need that the man had. And the man would simultaneously be a perfect and quality answer to the need of community the woman had as well. So we see that God gives us just such good and quality provision for our needs. This doesn't mean that God's going to give you a Bentley or the diamond, or the diamond watch, right, or the, or the mansion, right? So I think sometimes we're like, oh, our needs are actually just very much like glorified wants uh, in our culture here, right? But, but for, for our needs, God gives us good and quality provision. And I want to be very, very clear with what I just said about the woman being a perfect and quality answer for the need of the man, and the man being a perfect and quality answer for the need of the woman. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I want to be very, very clear about this. Woman was not created as an object for man. I'll say that again. Woman was not created as an object for man. And man was not created as an object for woman. Both man and woman were created as valuable and precious human beings, both made in the image of God. And God's heart, God's love, and God's care for the man and the woman is equal even with the presence of unique gender roles in the church and in the household. Right? God's heart and his love and his care is equal. There's no, none of this. Equal. Right? And going off of this, I want to talk to you about the use of the word helper that we see here in Genesis chapter 2 when God is talking about the creation of woman. To put it bluntly, I want to talk to you about this because there are jerks out there in the world who have twisted and abused this scripture right here to devalue, degrade, and dehumanize women. And I want to talk about this because I want to set the record straight about this scripture so that no woman has to live in fear or insecurity or oppression or anxiety about this. So in verse, in verse 18 and in verse 20 here in Genesis 2, the word helper is used by God when he's talking about creating woman, but this is in no way devaluing, degrading, dehumanizing, or belittling women at all. In these verses, God refers to the woman as a helper in terms of a complementary companion, not as a lesser than object or a secondary assistant or just an optional add-on. And actually, from my own study of this, uh, study of this just this week, I actually think that the word teammate would help us to accurately understand the idea of what God is communicating here in Genesis 2 when he uses the word helper. But when this was originally written, the, the idea of a teammate wasn't there, right? Adam wasn't like balling up on like the antelope or like, you know, scoring touchdowns on the elk, right? So teammate would be like, what's a, what's a teammate? I don't know, right? So we see helper, right? But I think for us in the modern day and like kind of how we view the world, I think teammate would actually be a very good word for us to understand what's being communicated here. Right? Think about it in the sport of basketball. There's five players on a team, right? And they're all on the court, right? And they're working together in a complementary way to accomplish the common goal, right? To score points and to win the game, right? And that's what we're seeing here, right? That man and woman were meant to be teammates, right? Not just like man up here and like woman's like, you know, down here, whatever. Like teammates to accomplish this common goal. Right? to carry out the will of God on the earth. And this is the biblical truth. 
What those jerks are saying, that is not the truth, right? They're going to have to pay for it, right? This is the biblical truth right here. And we actually see in this as well that God, like, like in the Word, he actually refers to himself as a helper using the same exact title as he does here in Genesis 2, like in his Word. And he does this multiple times. In Psalm 33, 20 through 21, God's Word says, We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. It's the same Hebrew word here as in Genesis 2. And in Exodus uh, 18, it says, After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom. For Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer. For he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. And there are many other examples of this scripture as well. So it's actually quite an honor to have this title in Genesis 2, right? Because God refers to himself using that same title. There's just one more verse for us to look at here in Genesis 2 this morning. And it's the very last verse of the chapter, verse 25. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So here in Genesis 2, 25, we see a life without shame. A life free of shame. And earlier when we were talking about the Garden of Eden, I said that the things that we see in the Garden of Eden, things like life, beauty, color, peace, delight, and pleasure, are things that God wants to bring our souls into, just as he brought the first man into uh, all those things in the Garden. And I want to add this to the list of things that God wants to bring our souls into as well. A life totally free of shame. In Genesis chapter 2, the first man and the first woman felt no shame because they had no sin. That would quickly change, as Grant will talk about more in his sermon next Sunday. But here in Genesis 2, they had no sin. Because of that, they felt no shame. But now fast forward to the current day, today. Unlike the first man and the first woman in Genesis 2, all of us here in this room today are guilty of sinning against God. For most of us, if not all of us, we are guilty of sinning against God a lot in our lives. So how is it that God is calling us into a life that is free from shame? if we've had sin in our lives. Well, as we've already talked about multiple times before this morning, it's because of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again to set you free from all shame, if you are a Christian. Romans 8, 1 and 2 in the Bible says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have been set free from all shame. And this is how God is calling us into a life that is free from shame. And our spiritual enemies can and will try to make you feel shameful about your sin and about your history and about your shortcomings, but you need to respond to those demonic schemes with the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth that the blood of Jesus Christ covered all of your sin, the truth that Jesus has set you free from all shame. And you can rejoice in that and be free in that. And with that said, that's the end of our journey uh, through Genesis chapter 2 together this, this morning. Uh, as I said earlier, um, there's just so much. There's a ton of amazing stuff in here. And we see God wearing his heart on his sleeve so much throughout this, throughout this chapter. Right? And I hope that through our journey today, you've gotten to see God's heart for you. You've gotten to see God's love for you. You've gotten to see God's care for you. Right? You've gotten to see how God has designed you. That work is good and godly. God, that, we have, that we have been created for a relationship with God. And that Jesus is coming and he has offered all of us the breath of life. Right? If, if you're a Christian here today, if you've received the breath of life into your soul, to bring your soul to life, man, praise God. Praise God. Continue to rejoice in the Lord and in his spirit, in his word in this community. But if you're here today and you haven't done that yet, your soul hasn't breathed in the breath of life yet. There's going to be people standing around the room during the second worship set that have green lanyards on. There'll be other people too. Like, I'll be back there. If this is something you want, if you're at the point where you say, you know what, I need Jesus to cover my sin. I need the breath of life. Jesus is offering it to you today. And you can have it today. Again, you just have to put your trust in him, that he's got you, that it's his righteousness for you, 
and commit to following him as your king. And he's such a good king. He's such a good shepherd. And it's my hope and my prayer that this sermon has been a blessing to you today. Uh, God's been very kind to me um, in, in, this, in this sermon. Um, and just to all of us in his word, how he's created us. Um, we're going to move into the second worship set now. But let, me, let me pray over us. Father God, God, thank you for the heart that you have for us. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your care. God, thank you, God, that you value us and you cherish us so much. Jesus, thank you that you are such a good king. That, Jesus, you have so much strength and power and might and victory. And, God, and Jesus, you use it all for good. You use it all for life, for peace, for justice. Jesus, you're such a good king. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for Genesis chapter 2 and everything you've revealed to us. God, thank you that, God, we have your fingerprints on us. God, that you formed us with your own hands. God, that you came and, God, you breathed your own breath, the breath of life, into us to make us alive physically. And, Jesus, you came that even when our souls were dead, even when we were dead in our sin, that, Jesus, you came to restore us, to redeem us, to bring the breath of life to our souls. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for those of us who have received that breath of life into our souls, Lord, help us to, to, to praise you, to worship you, to delight in you, to experience, to encounter, encounter everything that you died for, Jesus. Fullness of life, fullness of peace, fullness of joy security, identity. God, for anyone here, God, who hasn't breathed in your breath of life yet into their soul, Lord, I pray that you just review, continue to reveal yourself to them, that your arms are open wide, and that you're calling them to yourself. God, we love you so much, God. God, you're so lovable. God, you make it easy to love you. Oh, how we love you, God. all in Christ's name. Amen.